two-part series today on Experience the Extraordinary. I do want to welcome those joining us online. I'm Pastor Zach. Shelley and I serve as lead pastors here at Connection Point. And we're so glad that you're here today. I'm glad that you're here to worship with us and to uh, be a part of this church family today. And the reason I got into this series and have really been praying about this for some time is, as you examine Scripture, Jesus just makes these incredible, incredible statements. I mean, he says that in John 10, 10, that he came to give a rich and satisfying life. And then in John chapter 14, Jesus says that I've come to see my believers and those believers, as they follow after me, are going to do greater works, greater works than what Jesus did in John chapter 14. That's an incredible statement that we as followers of Christ can see greater things accomplished than what Jesus did while he was here on earth. And of course, we know how that happens with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that. But Jesus makes these statements, and then even in Luke 5, 26, where there's this episode where a paralyzed man is healed because his friends brought him to Jesus. And the crowd that's there, because of what has happened, because these friends brought this paralyzed man to Jesus, this crowd says, we're filled with awe and wonder, as the scripture tells us, and they said, we've seen extraordinary things today. And that's really what following Jesus should be. It, it should be us, as we follow him, we get to experience the extraordinary. But it seems so often as I talk with Christians, as I, I talk with those that, that claim to follow Christ, I don't see a whole lot of people really experiencing that. I'm not sure how many people would say I'm living a rich and satisfying life. How many people would say that I'm experiencing or seeing greater things happen? So then the question is why? What are we missing that doesn't lead us to those kinds of fulfillment of Scripture? That we don't see greater things happen? And, and as you look at Scripture and what we're going to head into today on the, on the first of this two-part series is an understanding that what we are missing is we're not fulfilling God's big dream. And so because we're not fulfilling God's big dream, then we miss out on the extraordinary. We miss out on the promises that we find in Scripture. So today what I want to examine is for us to be an extraordinary church, we must fulfill God's promises. We must fulfill God's big dream. And as we fulfill his big dream, his promises come. So I'm going to express that that truth in two different ways today. The first is this, that to be an extraordinary church, what we've got to do, and I'll grab my Bible so I can get into some scripture, is to fulfill uh, God's big dream is we first need to ask forgiveness for forfeiting it. That's where it really starts, that to be an extraordinary church, we must ask forgiveness for forfeiting God's big dream. And so then the question would be, as we look at this, before I can answer how we have forfeited it, it helps us to know what his big dream is. And so I want to examine a couple of pieces of scripture that help us with that. So I'm going to start in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we get a glimpse of what God's big dream is. Here's what he says, Peter writes, God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's heart is that everyone come to know who he is as their loving heavenly father. So that's a snapshot. And then we find a vision of what his big dream is. We see it fulfilled because John, one of the disciples of Jesus, he's given a vision of eternity. And so the book of Revelation, the, ba- the last book in the Bible, it gives us a picture of what that dream is. We get to see it. It's in Revelation chapter 7. And John writes, here's what he sees. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So this is God's big dream. His dream is that he would see one day all nations around the throne in worship. That we would see God's uh, heart being fulfilled, that all have reached repentance. That's what he wants to see happen. 
And what's interesting as you look at scripture is God has wanted to make a way for his big dream to be fulfilled ever since the fall of man. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God's had a heart to fulfill his big dream. Because his dream is to dwell with his children in paradise. So we get a picture of that in Eden. And then as we look at Revelation, we get a picture of it there. So the question is, in the meantime, how is God working that dream out? And so we first look at the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And what we find in Genesis is God finds a righteous man named Abram. And he has a desire for Abram to fulfill his dream. Here's what we find in in Genesis chapter 12, where God is speaking to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family. And go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like all nations are on the throne? All nations blessed. Okay, so this is God's heart. This is his dream. He's working to fulfill it out through a man named Abram, who God later renames as Abraham. The challenge is for Abraham is he and Sarah, his wife, they're advanced in years. They're older. They're beyond childbearing years. And so God has to do the impossible for them to receive a child. And he does. He does the impossible. And so then they uh, become with child Isaac. So Isaac is Abraham's son. And then God tests the obedience of Abraham to say, now go sacrifice your son on a mountain. And so when Abraham does this, he obeys God. He goes up on the mountain. But before he's able to do so, God says, stop. I now know that you will obey me in everything. So here's a ram, a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. And and here's what God then says after Abraham has showed his obedience. He says, because you have obeyed me, God talking to Abraham, and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, the same similar phrase. All because you have obeyed me. So God is working out his big dream. He's working it out through Abraham. He's working it out now through Isaac, who marries a woman named Rebekah. And then they have two kids, Esau and Jacob. And then what happens is, is uh, Isaac actually passes on the blessing to the younger son, to Jacob. And Jacob marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And Jacob has 12 sons, and Jacob is actually renamed as Israel. So this kind of helps us understand a little bit of Old Testament history. Where did the people of Israel get their name? Because God renamed Jacob as Israel. Where did the 12 tribes of Israel come from? The 12 sons of Jacob. Okay, so this is what God's working out. He's working out his big dream. But the challenge is the youngest, or not the youngest, but one of the sons, Joseph, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Anybody ever want to sell your sibling into slavery? That's a terrible thing. Shame on you. That's what they did. They sold him into slavery, but it was a part of God's mysterious plan because Joseph goes there, he faces hardship, but then he becomes the second in command to Pharaoh. And as the second in command, he sets up storehouses because a famine was coming. God spoke that to Joseph or through some dreams uh, of Pharaoh. And so then what happens is is, uh, Joseph's brothers are sent by Jacob or by Israel to Egypt to get food because they ran out. And they go there, they encounter Joseph, they get reconnected. Eventually, all of Jacob's family, all of the brothers and their families, they all come and resettle in Egypt. But then once Joseph dies, eventually a pharaoh comes into power that looks at the people of Israel as a people too numerous to be able to be a part of them. So what they do is they enslave the people of Israel. But God isn't for this. So he raises up a man named Moses, and he wants to set his people free. 
And so he does. He sets the people of Israel free, and they're out in the wilderness, and he says, I'm going to fulfill my promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so they're traveling. They're headed to a land that God has set apart for them. And here's the covenant he makes with them. It's in Exodus 19. It says, Now if you will obey me, so God talking to the people of Israel, and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. So what God is doing with the people of Israel is he wants to bring them to a particular piece of land. And you can see on the map that if you look at where that land is, it's marked as the promised land. It is the connecting piece for Africa, for Europe, and Asia. So what God is saying is in the Old Testament, I'm going to fulfill my dream. I'm going to see all nations come to know who I am by setting up a people in the middle of those trade routes. So that way, as people travel through that land, those people will say, these people are blessed by God. Who is this God that you serve? We want to serve him too. God's heart was that they would take Yahweh, the worship of Yahweh, back into their lands. That's how God was going to fulfill his big dream. But the challenge is, not too shortly thereafter, as they're continuing to travel, they set up camp at the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. Moses goes up this mountain to have a conversation with God, to ask God, what are the details of your plan for this people? How are we going to interact with you? And so God begins to lay that out. Well, it's some weeks later, and so the people of Israel, they're starting to get impatient. They're wondering if Moses is even still alive. And so then he's asking uh, the people of Israel, ask Aaron, the second in command to Moses, Aaron, take our jewelry, melt it down, fashion it into an idol that we can worship because we don't think Moses is even living anymore. And so then Aaron fashions a golden calf. And here's what happens then in Exodus 32. Because God has a dream to fulfill, but what we're going to find here is the people of Israel forfeit God's dream. So in Exodus 32, the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the people of Israel, God is setting apart. He has a plan for them, but they forfeit God's big dream. So we understand what God's big dream is. We see how it's been forfeited in the past. And so then the question is now, what God did is 1,500 years later, is he sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission. This is what we just celebrated last month at Christmas, that Jesus came, he was born in Bethlehem to die on a cross in Jerusalem to display his power and victory over death and the grave and evil so that we can live resurrected lives in him. And so Jesus came and broke the power of the enemy. But then what happens is for 40 days, he's visiting with the disciples, but then he ascends to heaven. And what's he do? He says, now I leave you with my power and authority and you are equipped to be my people to fulfill God's big dream in the land. That's what his heart was. So the question is then, how are we called to fulfill his big dream today? And it's best summed up in what we would call two different things, the great commandment and the great commission. Those two things summarize how God intends to fulfill his big dream through us. And the first is in Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus is being questioned. And so a man asks him, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? So I love this. Moses was on Mount Sinai asking God for laws and commandments. How are we going to engage? And Jesus says, and I'm going to take and summarize all those into this statement right here. He replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. How do we fulfill God's big dream? Love God and love others. 
It's pretty simple. And then Jesus later then describes how it is we express that love, you know, because love is an action. It's a verb. So how do we do that? He says in Matthew 28, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. So Jesus says, so therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we see that today? Yes. Welcome to water baptism. This is what we're doing here in Matthew 28. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God desires to fulfill his big dream by us loving God and loving others. And that is expressed as we share his story, as we share his goodness with others. That's how we're called to fulfill his big dream. Yet what's interesting is, as we look at the church today, what I have found is we have forfeited God's big dream in three big ways. And the first is this. The first way that we have forfeited God's big dream is we have separated ourselves from the culture. We have drifted away from the culture that God has asked us to engage. And how have we done that? Well, we created Christian communities to keep us separate from the world. Churches with gyms, daycares, schools, and sports leagues, they can in many ways keep us shielded from the very people Jesus asked us to engage. We have Christian mu- movies, uh, Pure Flix instead of Netflix, Christian music, Christian theme parks, and lots of other Christian-branded items to help keep us from an evil world. Now, before you decide to throw me off a cliff after today's service, I want to clarify those statements to say none of those things are bad things. I'm all in favor of Christian movies. In fact, I just recommended one in between services today. But what I'm saying is, as we look at these things, is too often we have embraced Christian activities and programs as a way to escape the world instead of as a way to prepare ourselves to engage the world. Do you understand the difference? Far too many Christians are looking for ways to escape the evil world we live in instead of saying, Jesus, how can you empower me to engage the world that we live in today? So all of those things are great. I have participated in all those things and still do so. But what I'm saying is, is we can't use those as ways to separate ourselves from society. We who are followers of Jesus, we're called to be a bridge between God and culture. But now slowly we've become a bridge to nowhere because culture has moved, it's grown increasingly evil, and so we have separated ourselves from society. I want to share a a picture with you that kind of helps illustrate this. So there's a bridge in Honduras called the Chaloteca Bridge, and it was designed to withstand the strongest hurricane, and it did. It survived Hurricane Mitch, a Category 5 hurricane that devastated the Caribbean in 1998. Now, to help connect this illustration to what we're talking about today, how many know the church has withstood some serious storms in the last 2,000 years? Absolutely. It's faced persecution of various kinds for the last 2,000 years, and it's withstood the test of time. So like the bridge, it has stayed strong. But what's interesting about this bridge is as strong as it was, the bridge is still intact But because of the strength of the hurricane, it actually moved the landscape in such a way that the river moved around the bridge, and it has now become a bridge to nowhere. I want to show you a picture of that bridge. Isn't that a good-looking bridge? Sure doesn't serve a whole lot of function, though, right? Like, here, enter onto the bridge. I'll drive you right into the river. (laughs) That's the welcome sign. How many know that the society has shifted and changed over the last 2,000 years? Absolutely. So while the church has remained strong, the society has shifted and the church is no longer the bridge that it was called to be. And you would ask me, well, how do you know that? How do you know that we're no longer serving as a bridge? Because 80% of American churches are in decline. That tells me when Jesus says that I will build my church, that's a promise, I will build my church. But what that means is, is you've got to engage the culture for me to be able to build it. And we have missed out on that. We can't miss out on that. 
And maybe you're wondering this morning, well, okay, so maybe the church isn't engaging, but maybe I still am. And so I want to ask some personal questions to kind of help you assess where are you at in this today. I basically want to show you how we have distanced ourselves from unchurched people. And so the first is this. Three questions. First is, do you have the names of at least three people that you're praying for on a regular basis who don't know God? Maybe on your fridge, maybe they're on a a prayer app, maybe they're on a prayer list somewhere, a journal. Three names. Maybe you do, that's wonderful. And maybe you don't. Okay, second question is, how many times this last month have you had unchurched people in your home? How many times the last month? Or maybe you could flip that around. How many times in the last month have you been in the home of an unchurched person? The last question is, if you were to look at your picture roll, pull up your phone, look at your camera roll, how many of the last 100 pictures that you have of people would include people who don't know Jesus? And now I mention all that not in any way to make you feel bad. That's not the point. In fact, this is meant to be an encouraging, inspiring message as we get to the end to understand how we get to fulfill God's big dream. But I also know that the reason this has happened, I understand why it's happened, is because we're living in a world that's growing increasingly evil. We are. So that's why we have separated ourselves from unchurched people. We're basically saying, look, there's evil things happening out there, and I don't want anything to do apart with it. So I understand why it's happened. Uh, When I was a kid, so in the seventh grade, my family moved to the Chicago area. But before that, we lived in South Dakota and North Dakota. And I would wake up, I'd be out the door by 8 a.m. on my bike, BB gun strapped to my back, and I was off. I might show up for dinner. Um, And that's only if my friends didn't have dinner available. That was my life as a kid. But we don't do that today. What parent is going to let their kids just run rampant like that? That's just not the kind of life that that we're going to have for our kids. We want our kids to have adult supervision. And we've got good reason to do so. Think about the tragedy of last year. You know, a couple of teenage girls hiking near Delphi. Four hours later, reported missing. The next day, bodies found murdered. Killed because we live in an evil world. So I get it. I understand why we would want to separate ourselves. It really is the natural response. But the problem for that for us is we're called to live supernatural lives. And Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell, they shall not, they will not, they cannot prevail against it. So as the world is growing increasingly evil, we have to grow increasingly brave and we have to engage the world that we live in Make no mistake, we've got to live in the power and authority of Jesus because he says that we have it. He says, I give you my power, I give you my authority, now go engage the world in Jesus' name. So while the world is growing increasingly evil, we have to become increasingly brave. We can't step away. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. We don't keep the peace. We go into conflict zones and we, be, we create peace because Jesus is with us. That's our mission and our mandate. That's who we are as the church. We have... Uh, forfeited God's big dream by separating ourselves from the culture that Jesus asked us to engage. And the second thing we've done is we forfeited God's big dream by replacing our primary calling with our secondary calling. We've replaced our primary calling with our secondary calling, and I'm going to explain what that means. But in short, what this means is we have become full-time teachers. We've become full-time stay-at-home moms. We've, we've become full-time pastors. We've become full-time businessmen and businesswomen. We've become full-time students. And then we become part-time Christians. We can't be full-time teachers and part-time Christians. We can't be full-time businessmen and businesswomen and part-time Christians. That's not God's call in our life. We have exchanged our primary mission for our secondary passions. Church historians and scholars, they highlight that every Christian has at least two callings. We have a primary or common calling and a secondary or unique calling. We all have this. Our primary calling is is not unique. It's actually shared among us all. We're to be disciple makers who make disciple makers. 
Everyone in this room has their call, that calling on their lives. But then we also have a unique or a secondary calling as well. And it's unique to each one of us. Ephesians 2.10, it says that each of us is uniquely made with specific good works and deeds to accomplish. Jesus gives us these callings so that we can directly participate in his mission for us to carry his goodness to every other part of society. If we were to interview everybody in this room today, it would be incredible the touch points we have all throughout Greater Lafayette area and in lots of places stretching throughout Indiana and even the world because we have world travelers here. I know it. And so God means for you to fulfill your primary calling in your secondary settings, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. We're all called to do that, to bring his goodness to other people. In fact, this is the only way you get a real sense of fulfillment in your life in real forward movement. And to illustrate this, I want to show you a picture of a rowboat where you've got two oars, one representing your primary calling, one your secondary calling. And here's what happens. If you put both those oars in the boat, then you just drift along with culture. That's what happens. But now if you just put your secondary calling, say, hey, I'm a teacher, I'm a businessman, I'm a whatever, fill in the blank, you know? As you're oaring, what's going to happen? As you're paddling, what's going to happen? You're going in circles. Anybody ever feel like you're going in circles in life? Absolutely. It's because we've, we've basically made our primary calling and we've substituted it with our secondary calling. The only way for us to really fulfill what God has for our hearts, the only way that we get forward motion and movement is when we stick both oars in the water and we start going, saying, Jesus, I'm going to go. I'm going to engage the culture you've called me to. I'm going to go and take you to the workplace. I'm going to go take you to my neighborhood. That's how I'm going to go after it. And then we start to feel and see those promises of God fulfilled in our lives. So then the question is, how have we done that? Why did we replace our secondary calling with our primary objective? We've done that because we've embraced secularism. And here's what secularism is. It basically is that we have made ourselves our own God. We've dethroned Jesus, and we've put ourselves at the center of our wills. This is the original sin of Adam and Eve, that the serpent tempts Eve and says, look, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. So we're still living in that same sin. And in that regard, then we're not fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. Here's ways that we've done it. You know, we're going to uh, work long hours in the pursuit of happiness through our jobs. We look for promotion for validation. We want bigger salaries to acquire more things or to have financial security because once we realize our jobs aren't doing it, promotions aren't satisfying us, then we've got to pursue other things as well. And all of this then keeps us at the center and we've dethroned Jesus. We have forfeited God's big dream by replacing our primary calling with our secondary calling. And the last way this morning is that we forfeited God's big dream by exchanging the power and authority of Jesus with church growth strategies. And I'm actually going to put this in two ways. We've exchanged the power and authority of Jesus with church growth strategies, and we've exchanged the power and authority of Jesus. Why has that happened? Because we've come in with consumer Christianity mindsets. That's how we've exchanged the power and authority of Jesus and forfeited his dream. Uh, I was uh, standing in line a couple of weeks ago uh, overhearing a conversation of some people talking about their church. It wasn't this church. And they were talking about how their church was in decline, and they were talking through how they could see their church grow. I firmly believe every Christian wants to be a part of an extraordinary church. But it's interesting to see as I was listening to the conversation how they were coming up with strategies or ideas of how they could see their church grow, but it seemed very few of those had anything to do with what's in the Bible. That's a problem. So it seems everybody wants to be a part of an extraordinary church, but few knew what it take, takes to get us there. On large scale, here's what we've done. We've made the church an enterprise of events and programs instead of a community of disciple makers. We've made the church an enterprise of events and programs instead of a community of disciple makers. 
Um, in fact, many church leaders, they've made church growth their target, and in doing so, they've increased their effectiveness at breaking growth barriers. So it does work. Read books on church growth. You can break through growth barriers. But here's the problem. They've added to their numbers, but the unfortunate consequence is, is they could be simply building bigger and bigger holding tanks for unengaged consumer Christians. That's the problem. And if you want to start a church, you can read a book on it, and you could probably do so. But what you're going to find is surface-level relationships and no real-life transformation. And that's not what we're about. So then how have we exchanged the power and authority of Jesus with church growth strategies? How have we allowed Christian consumer mentality to impact what happens in the church? What we've done is we have forgotten about the Holy Spirit. That's one way. We forgot about the Holy Spirit. And many churches, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, yep, God the Holy Spirit's there too. We've forgotten him, and in doing so, um, we have basically made the benchmark of our success in the church more about attendance than the movement of the Holy Spirit. The entertainment model of the church that was largely adopted in the 80s and 90s may have alleviated some of our boredom for a couple of hours a week, but it filled our churches with self-focused consumers rather than self, uh, self-sacrificing Christians attuned to the Holy Spirit. That's what we've done, so we've seen this shift happen. But when I read through the book of Acts, when you look at the amazing things that the early church did, there's a big discrepancy between what we read in here and too often what we find in the church today. And it's not meant to be that way. We're living out Acts 29. So the book of Acts only has 28 chapters. We're the continuing chapter. We're still a part of that. And we need to see that, we need to see that close the gap. Far too many people have forgotten the Holy Spirit. And for those churches that have dismissed him altogether, most can tell there's something missing. And it's not a something, it's a someone. It's the Holy Spirit. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, there's evidence in their lives that's supernatural. The church cannot help but be different and the world cannot help but notice because people full of the Spirit, they walk in the power and authority of Jesus. So that's one way, but I'll say on the other spectrum, the other way that we've neglected to operate in the power and authority of Jesus is we made manifestations of the Spirit the goal instead of the byproduct of pursuing Jesus. We've made it the goal. When you come in here on a Sunday morning, my heart is for you to experience the presence of Jesus. That's why we have communion stations set up. That's why we have people come forward in prayer. That's why we give, because we know where you give, where your treasure is, there your heart is. We want to help direct your heart. So all of these things are meant to engage you in the presence of Jesus. Now, if God decides to show up in such a way in the supernatural through tongues or interpretation of tongues or word of knowledge, that's fantastic. We had a word shared in first service, and I love that. But at the same time, if he doesn't show up in that way, that's great too. Why? Because the goal isn't manifestations. The goal is Jesus. We want to experience Jesus. That's the goal of the church here. And so along with this, as we've sometimes made manifestations the goal instead of Jesus, what we've done is we've said the supernatural happens here on a Sunday, and we've dismissed the supernatural from the rest of our lives. We don't understand that God desires to use us, work in and through us, all throughout the 167 other hours we have in a week. This is only one hour here. We've got 167 that God says, I want to use you in my name. And so we've missed it there as well. And so for what purpose does God desire to use us? So that we can live out our primary calling in our secondary setting. That's how God desires to fulfill his big dream. So then the question is this, what's the cost? What's the cost of forfeiting God's big dream? What's the cost of forfeiting his dream by separating ourselves from the culture we were asked to engage? What's the cost of forfeiting his dream by replacing our primary calling with our secondary calling? What's the cost of exchanging the power and authority of Jesus 
with church growth strategies, with, with a consumer Christianity mindset. Let's look at what the cost was for the Israelites. So we see that shortly after this episode happens, Moses comes down off the mountain, and then, and then in Exodus 33, the very next chapter, here's what God says. Now I'll say this, if you read Exodus 32, it's very interesting. I mean, basically God wants to wipe the people of Israel off the face of the earth. That's his initial response. Moses prays, God relents, and then here's what God says, though. Get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go to the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I told them I will give this land to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Uh, go up to this land that flows with milk and honey. So what God is saying is, look, I'm still going to fulfill my promise because God fulfills his promises. He says, I'm going to send you. I'm going to go before you. But here's the phrase that scares me. He says, but I will not travel among you for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. The cost of forfeiting God's big dream is the loss of himself. We lose God. Could there be a greater cost than to lose the very presence of God? We're called to be people of his presence in the world, but we can't be people of his presence if his presence isn't among us. I find it so interesting when we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The very last phrase says, and I am with you always. But it's in the context of our going that as we go, Jesus says, I am with you. So how should we respond? Let's look at how the people of Israel responded. Next is 33, the very next verse. When the people heard these stern words, they went into mourning and stopped wearing their jewelry and fine clothes. They went into mourning. They gave up their jewelry. What did they use to make the golden calf? Their jewelry. So they say, God, we're giving up our idols. For us to fulfill God's big dream, we must first ask forgiveness for the fact that we have forfeited it. And that looks like us asking for forgiveness and saying, God, I give up the idol of self today. Can we do that right now? God, I just ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for forfeiting your dream by making an idol of ourselves. We put ourselves at the center when you are meant to be at the center. Forgive us by doing that, by not engaging the people that you've called us to engage. Forgive us for doing that by replacing our primary calling with our secondary passions. Forgive us, God, for making ourselves an idol by, by forfeiting your big dream. God, we don't want to lose your presence. We don't want to lose you. So God, I just ask that you help us to fulfill your big dream. Give us the strength to do that, God. Give us the strength to engage the culture we live in. Give us the strength to fulfill our primary callings, Lord, in our secondary settings. Give us the strength, God, to walk in your power and authority, to know, Lord, that you have gone before us. Help us in that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To be an extraordinary church, what does that look like? We must fulfill God's big dream by loving him and by loving others. We must fulfill God's big dream by loving him and loving others. We know that we're called right now to live in his name. And he says, 
the way that you're going to fulfill God's big dream is you're going to love others and you're going to love me. And what's interesting in John chapter 14, the very same chapter where Jesus says that my disciples will accomplish greater works, is what he says in that same chapter is he says in, in John chapter 14 that if you love me, so again, how do we fulfill God's dream? We love Jesus. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's the context. And what's interesting is we look at God's big dream. Obedience is the common thread. It's what's always been required. When you look at those scriptures that we just read before, in Genesis chapter um, 20, it says, because you have obeyed me, I think it's actually 22, because you have obeyed me, God talking to Moses, I will certainly bless you. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? All because you have obeyed me. What was required of Abraham was obedience. Same thing for the people of Israel in Exodus 19. If you will obey me, God says, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth and all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom's priest, my holy nation. Obedience is what's required to fulfill God's big dream. So we don't want to miss that. We want to fulfill God's big dream. And obedience is what's required. So the question as we look at the great commandment, because that's our, that's our commandment. So he says, obey the commands of loving me and loving others, and the great commission, do that by going and telling others. So if the commandment is to go, we're to go to our neighbors, we're to go to our colleagues. So the question is not are we sent, but to who and to where are we sent? That's what we should be asking. And that's the question we need to ask this morning. So what I'd like to do today is to close to tell us how we can personally and obediently fulfill these commands of Jesus in the Bible, all in the pursuit of fulfilling God's big dreams so that we might maintain the presence of God in our lives. Because what's incredible is as you obey Jesus, everything else in your life comes together. That's what we see in Scripture. That's how promises are fulfilled. And so we want you to experience that today. So Florhost, if you could help me this morning and pass out that piece of paper. I just want to walk you through. This is something you could stick on your fridge. And it helps lay out for us how do we, in very practical ways, fulfill God's big dream. To say, God, we know we want you to be with us in this endeavor. Step one, very simple. Here's what you do. You make a map. Make a map of your neighborhood and workplace. You're going to find that. Make a map of your neighborhood and workplace. So Shelly and I just moved this past week uh, to a different neighborhood. So then we've already been compiling and making a map of the houses around us and and then that leads us to step two, where you fill in the names of your neighbors. So step one, make a map. You could do that today. Everybody can make a map of your neighborhood and your workplace. And then step two is you start to fill it in with the names of your neighbors. Um, Shelly and I have always been good to do that, but even more intentionally this year, uh, we're giving out invitations in the next couple of weeks to say, who's living at 6232, a party basically at our house, because we want to get to know our neighbors, the houses that are around us. And so for us, it's very easy. We just moved, so it's very simple for us to get to know because people are always curious, who are the new neighbors? So it's simple for us to do. Now, if you've been living in your neighborhood for like 5, 10, 15 years, and you've been like closing the shades, pulling in your garage door, shutting it before, you know, you can interact with the neighbors, it might be a little bit harder for you to now introduce yourself to your neighbors. Anybody know that could be difficult? So I've come up with two ways that you can uh, change that today. Uh, tomorrow, what you can do is you can go rent a rental truck, and you can pull it up to your house. You don't even have to put anything inside it. Just pretend like you've moved out. The next day or a couple of days later, pull that moving truck up again, pretend like you've moved in, and then go introduce yourself to all your neighbors. <laughs> One way that you can uh, get to know your neighbors. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. It's going to cost you something. Way number two, and this is what I'd encourage you to do, just go home and make some cookies today. Put them on some throwaway plates. Go around to your neighbors. You can just tell them, hey, look, made a New Year's resolution. 
part of what I want to do this year is I want to get to know my neighbors. I'm so-and-so, and would just love to know who you are. Get to know your neighbors in that way. So step one, make a map. Step two, fill in those names of your neighbors and your coworkers on that map. And then step three, what we have here, assign numbers to each name according to their level of awareness or commitment to Jesus. And there's a reference on the back, so I want you to flip to that. In our community, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, and everywhere that we go to, there's five different types of people that you're engaging with. There could be a level one person who's antagonistic. They're hostile to the message of Jesus. You usually know who these people are because they don't mind vocalizing that. So they're antagonistic. Level two is disinterested. So they're not against Jesus or the Bible, but they're just really not curious at all. So they're just disinterested. Level three is an explorer. Somebody who's curious about who Jesus is. That's an explorer. Level four is a believer. So somebody who may have professed uh, faith in Jesus. Um, They may not always be in church, so maybe their attendance isn't great. Um, But that's a believer, but somebody who's at least somewhat engaged with Jesus and the church. And then level five is an obedient follower of Jesus. How do you know if somebody's an obedient follower of Jesus? They have a heart to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. That's an obedient follower of Jesus. So five different types of people. So step one, make a map. Step two, fill in the name. Step three, then you can number those people um, according to where they're at and their level of commitment to Christ. And then step four, last thing, interact with each person in a way that enables them to move to the next level. So when Jesus says, love your neighbors, we want you to love your neighbors to the next level. That's really the whole point. So then the question is, how do you do that? Okay, so for level one, somebody who's an antagonistic person, they must move from distrust to trust by spending time with followers of Jesus they like and grow to trust. So how does somebody who's antagonistic move from an antagonistic to at least disinterested? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to move from distrust to trust simply by you being friends with them. That's all you got to do. They need to get to know who you are and then trust you. That's how you can change them. So what I mean by that is, that is not the kind of person, level one, antagonistic, don't give them a you're invited card. Don't give it to them. Why? Because what they're going to do is stuff it with tobacco, roll it up, and smoke it in front of you. So don't give them a you're invited card. That doesn't work for level one people. Please don't do it. They're not meant to be smoked. They're meant to be handed out. Level two, if somebody's disinterested, here's what you do. You must move from indifference to curiosity by hearing or seeing something that stirs curiosity. So what happens is, as you're hanging out with that person who is a level one that becomes a level two, they start to see in you something that brings about curiosity. So now then they've moved to become an explorer. Now they're curious about who Jesus is. And then how do you move an explorer to a believer? They have to move from closed to open to change by wanting what followers of Jesus have. So as people see in you what they don't have, it makes explorers curious and they want it for themselves. So then the next thing they need to do is move from lost to saved, and that happens as you have a, the way of Jesus simply explained to them. That's why at the end of every service on Sundays, I give an invitation for people to make a decision to follow Jesus. Because I know in this room this morning, we have explorers, we have believers, and we have followers of Jesus. And my heart is to see everyone progress to the next level. It was mentioned this morning, Shelly mentioned, it was mentioned in the baptism video. We want to see you take next steps in faith. And then how do you move someone who's a believer to become a follower of Jesus? They must move from being self-centered to being Jesus-centered. They put Jesus in the center. And that happens as they're invited to follow Jesus to a whole new level. And we try to do that regularly here at Connection Point. So this is a very simple way, I've tried to make it as simple as we can, of how do we fulfill God's big dream? And yet what's interesting though, as simple as this is, I know people will take that and not a lot of people will say, I'm gonna go after that. But then we're still forfeiting God's big dream. And the cost, in my opinion, is too great. We can't forfeit God's big dream. What I'd like to do is I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the music team to come, and we're going to close in song this morning. 
But before we close today, you know, as we're walking through that piece of paper, maybe an honest reflection you would say for yourself, you know what, I'm not sure that my life would generate curiosity with anybody else. I'm not sure that the way I'm living is anything that somebody else would want. And so that's what next week is all about. That's why you've got to come back next week so I can explain. The role of the church is for us to develop you, to pour into you so that you generate curiosity for others, so that you have what other people want. That's our heart. So we want to do that. So that's what I'm going to talk about next week with Extraordinary Life, Becoming a Mentor. So I encourage you to come back next week. So if you've got questions of how do we see this done, how do I actually live that out, I'm going to answer that question next week. But before we close today, before they, they come and close in song, I'd like to ask the question, if anybody's here today, and maybe you're an explorer, maybe you're, you've been curious about who Jesus is, but you really haven't made a step to become a believer or a follower in his name, but maybe today you'd say, you know what, I want to take next steps right here. I don't need to wait for somebody to um, do anything different in my life. I'm, I want to follow after Jesus with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. That's what we have here. So if that's you today, with every head bowed in this room, I just want to invite you to that. You're invited to the extraordinary. That's what Jesus promises, and we're going to head into that. So if you're here today and say, you know, I've been curious about who Jesus is, but I've really never dedicated my life to him, but I want to do that today, simply raise your hand, and I want to pray with you before we leave from this place. I want to pray that you become an obedient follower of Jesus, a level five follower. Anybody here today say, that's me. I want to follow Jesus and follow him in that way, fulfilling his heart and his dreams. Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to live in your name. Oh God, I just ask that you would lead us into greater depths of who you are as our loving Heavenly Father. May we desire more of you, God. More of you and less of us. Jesus, I just pray that we would live in your name. God, help us fulfill your big dream. We don't want to forfeit it. God, we can't bear the cost of forfeiting your dream. So Jesus, I just pray that you give us a heart to love you, to love our neighbors, Lord, and to do that by sharing your goodness with others. Jesus, we want to live in your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.